as the sun rose over the rooftops of a small French village behind the lines on the Western Front, a volley from a dozen soldiers rang out, and a British Tommy tied to a post fell dead. This week, we look at the story of those men who were shot at dawn. Back in the 1980s, the chairman of our local Sussex Western Front Association branch, Julian Sykes, gave a talk on the research that he was doing for a book that he was working on with fellow author Julian Potowski about the men who'd been executed in the First World War. They had discovered a file that had just been released by the Ministry of Defence into what was then the Public Records Office, the National Archives today, that listed all of the soldiers who had been executed by name, gave their units, gave their date of execution and the reason that the execution took place. For the first time since the war, this evidence had been made available and this spurred the two Julians on to write the book Shot at Dawn, which became one of the first proper comprehensive guides to the military executions in the British Army in the First World War. It was a subject then, nearly 40 years ago, that was not widely talked about and very little was known about it. Judge Babington, and I'll put details of some of these books onto the podcast website, had written a book for the sake of example slightly earlier, but he'd not named any names. That was one of the conditions of him being given access to the papers for these men. The papers, the documents describing their trial and the crime that had been committed and the details of the subsequent execution were then still surviving and were eventually transferred to the Public Records Office and they are available to view and do research with. And indeed, quite a few websites out there now have transcribed some of the documents and put them online. But like I say, then it was quite a new subject. The whole story of men executed in the Great War, to a degree, had been swept under the carpet. There was the occasional first-hand account from a chaplain or a serving soldier who had witnessed an execution, but the scale and the size of the numbers of executions that had taken place in the war was little known. Many, even at the time and since, have questioned why the discussion of these men was even necessary. But if you look at an army in the rounds, to truly understand it, you not only have to examine its brave deeds on the battlefield, you have to look at discipline within that army and how the army dealt with men who failed, who committed military crimes, whether that be desertion or cowardice or striking a superior officer. Whatever the crime was, how did the army deal with those and what were the consequences for men who did these things? And across the Western Front and indeed other battlefields, because executions took place even at Gallipoli, for example, where there was no proper rear area behind the lines. The evidence of this was scattered like silent sentinels across different battlefields of the Great War. And what the research by the two Julians did was unearth this list of names and give these men back their identity in some respects and tell us a bit more about the history, the overall history of the British Army in the Great War. So this podcast is an introduction really to this subject of soldiers who were executed by firing squad in the First World War. It's not a comprehensive guide to it, that's what the books are for and websites, but it's to give us a bit of an introduction to using the the titles from those two early books on it to men who were, and that's the phrase used at the time, shot for the sake of example, and more recently as we know it's the men shot at dawn. The first execution in the Great War took place as early as the 8th of September 1914. Now considering that Britain had only gone to war on the 4th of August and the first troops had arrived the next day and the bulk of the expeditionary force had only arrived in the lead up to the Battle of Mons in late August 1914, that was quite an early execution and it was Private Thomas Highgate of the 1st Battalion Royal West Kent's from the small village of Shoreham in Kent. He was a pre-war regular soldier, and during the retreat from Mons, when the British Army marched those 200 miles from Mons to the Marne, he went absent from his battalion. During that fluid period, really, of the retreat from Mons, I guess it was difficult to work out desertion from men who genuinely got cut off from their unit. 
but in the case of Highgate, it was considered desertion on active service. He was found guilty of desertion, and on active service in France, it was a sentence that carried the death penalty, and he became the first man to be shot by firing squad. The purpose, even with that very earliest execution, was to set an example to other men. The regular army was made up, as we've said in previous episodes, knots in battalions of choir boys of innocence. These were rough, tough men, and they needed discipline to march. All armies need discipline to march and fight. And the army's own rough, tough approach to this was to shoot men to set an example to others to not do the same. Just over four years later, the last executions on active service took place on the 7th of November 1918, just a few days before the armistice. There were two men executed this day, Private Lewis Harris of the 10th Battalion, the West Yorkshire Regiment. Born into a Jewish family in London, by the time of the Great War, his parents were now living in Leeds, where there was quite a sizeable Jewish community. He was shot for desertion. And that same day, Private Ernest Jackson, another Londoner, serving with the 24th Battalion Royal Fusiliers, was also shot for desertion. So four years between those two executions, the first and the last, hundreds of others in between, and we'll go through the figures shortly. There were some men shot post-armistice. These were men largely from the Chinese Labour Corps for the crimes of murder. And when we look at the figures for executions, to get a sense of the scale of it and just how many men that we're talking about here, if we look at the publication by Julian Sykes and Julian Potowski, they state in the 1980s when they published that 268 men were shot for desertion, that's the largest number, 37 for murder, and by murder we mean murder of fellow comrades. There were two men in the Royal Welsh Fusiliers, for example, who didn't like a particular quartermaster, got blind drunk one night and decided that they were going to kill him, went out to kill him but shot the wrong person, and that was kind of their defence at their trial that they'd shot the wrong person, but of course murder was a capital crime that carried the death penalty and those men were shot. Some of the executions for murder were not of military personnel, they were of French or Belgian civilians. And there was one particularly nasty case that I remember from the files of a soldier who raped and murdered a French woman in a small town on the French coast. So that type of crime that had taken place in civilian life before the war didn't just stop when the war came along. And those men would have been punished for that crime under any and every circumstance. So they're often excluded from the figures for military executions of the First World War, but it's worth noting just how many there were. Continuing to look at the military crimes that soldiers were convicted for and then shot, 18 were for cowardice, that's cowardice in the face of the enemy, 7 for quitting your post, 5 for disobedience, 5 for striking a superior officer, so slapping an officer in the face or a senior NCO, Four for mutiny, that was on the Western Front only, and it included the Atarpal Mutiny in 1917, Private Jesse Short of the Northumberland Fusiliers being an example of one of the men shot for mutiny during the Atarpal Uprising. Two men were shot for sleeping at their post, and two for casting away their arms. So in the 80s, the two Julians put the figure at 348 men who were shot by firing squad. Four decades later, those figures have been slightly amended, only slightly. The figure accepted now is 346 soldiers who were executed by firing squad, 40 of those for murder, 322 of them on the Western Front, so that's 306 for military crimes, from desertion to cowardice and all the other types of crimes that we've just described. Within those figures, there were 25 Canadians, five New Zealanders and four men of the British West Indies Regiment, including Private Herbert Morris, who was one of the youngest to be executed at age 17. No Australians were executed by firing squad in the First World War. The Australian government, after an incident in the Boer War, removed the ability of the British military to be able to carry out death sentences on Australian soldiers without the express permission of the Australian government. That didn't stop quite a lot of senior Australian officers during the war 
calling for the death sentence to be brought in because thousands of Australian soldiers were arrested for military crimes, sent off to military detention camps and were languishing in these camps when they could be better employed on the front line. And because there was no deterrent not to desert, not to carry out a crime, these senior commanders in the Australian Imperial Force felt that the death sentence should be introduced, but it never was. So no Australian soldiers were shot by a firing squad during all four years of the Great War. Looking at the wider context of those figures, it is known that 3,080 men were sentenced to death. So over 3,000 sentenced to death, but 306 shot. So that meant, really, you only had a 1 in 10 chance of being executed for a military crime. 90% of the men who were convicted and sentenced to death, the sentence was then reduced to penal servitude. The reason behind that was is that the army was not in the business of shooting its own men except in exceptional circumstances. It wanted men to try again. It wanted them to return to their unit and continue to be good soldiers. And some men who were sentenced to death were given a period of penal servitude, returned to their unit and continued to serve in the ranks and do their bit, some of them later being killed in the war. I've researched one or two men from the Royal Sussex Regiment, for example, who in the early battles of 1914 and 1915 had been convicted by Field General Court Martial for desertion, been sentenced to death. It was a first-time offence that had been commuted to penal servitude. They'd gone into a prison run by the Military Provost Staff Corps for a while and seen the error of their ways. That was the idea behind it, and I use that phrase loosely, of course, and then returned to their battalion, and both those men were killed in the Battle of the Somme. So we have to see it in its bigger context. Most men were not shot. 306 were shot for military crimes in a war that for British and Commonwealth forces resulted in more than a million dead. So it's a very small number, but small as it is, it is something that we need to know about for us to study and understand the British and Commonwealth forces in the Great War. There are quite a lot of myths associated with this subject and hopefully the podcast will help dispel some of those. One is that they shot men who showed any kind of sign of shell shock and that the vast majority of men who were shot were all shell shock victims. Now when you look at the papers the actual case files of each individual soldier who was shot and I've looked at every single one of them over the years there are clear examples of men who were displaying signs of shell shock and who were actually at their trials. Witnesses came forward and stated that they had shell shock, but yet they were still executed. There are reasons, often complex ones, behind that. So that is a true statement in one respect. But then you have some men who carried out quite complex things to try and get away from the front line. And shell shock is a debilitating condition. Could men who were truly suffering from that carry out some of the nephritis activities that some of these soldiers did? As historians, we can look back on that and assess it. Not coldly, because we're talking about men's lives here, but it is important to do that, again, to see it in its context. Shell shock was a recognised military condition from quite early on in the war. There were some casualty clearing stations by the time of the Battle of the Somme, for example, that specialised in the reception of shell shock cases. Throughout the war, there was much debate amongst medical officers as to whether this was a real condition or not. Men felt that it was easy for soldiers to become malingerers and say they didn't like the sound of the guns. Others were more sympathetic. And shell shock is a subject that we'll return to in the podcast further down the line. But it isn't true that most soldiers who were executed were shell shock victims and it isn't true that the army shot every man that showed any kind of symptoms of shell shock because if it had have done then thousands and thousands of soldiers would have been shot. So having looked at the figures what was the military law used by the British army in 1914 and the military law employed by the British army was exactly the same as that employed by all of the then Empire Commonwealth forces as well. The army went to war in 1914 with the 1881 Army Act. The Army Act was 
essentially a list of rules and regulations by which the army carried out its conduct. It listed what was and was not acceptable behaviour and depending on the type of crime and the severity of that crime, it then listed what type of punishment would be given for it. So in that 1881 Army Act, it allowed for various types of punishments for things that soldiers did wrong, for the infractions that they got up to, what would happen to them. And this could be anything from loss of pay and privileges, being confined to barracks and, or camp, but then at the other end of the extreme were field punishments, the famous field punishment number one, often called by the soldiers cartwheel crucifixion, when soldiers were sentenced to this for up to 28 days at a time, when they'd be strapped to uh, the wheel of a wagon or a fixed post for several hours a day, then do physical training in full kit, marching around with your rifle above your head, all sorts of fatigues and other nasty tasks that were required within your battalion or units, and then you'd be sent back and tied to the cartwheel or the fixed post once more. That was pretty severe, pretty hard for the soldier concerned, and also resulted in loss of pay and obviously other privileges. Field punishment number two was similar, but the soldier was shackled rather than tied. So he wasn't strapped to a wagon wheel or a post, but he was shackled so he couldn't move about freely and do what he wanted. And then he'd go through the same process of physical drill and all sorts of other tasks that were required of him. Those two were dished out on active service in probably hundreds of thousands of cases during the Great War. When you look at the surviving service records of British soldiers, you see the award, and that's the phrase that is used, the award of field punishment number one or two to soldiers on a regular basis. For serious crimes, the punishment depended on where they took place. So if they were in Britain, so on home service, the highest possible sanction was penal servitude, was time in a military prison. And there were a number of these used within Britain throughout the First World War. There wasn't one single place like there was in the more recent modern army, for example, with Colchester. But on active service, so being overseas, if a soldier was convicted of those serious crimes, he could face the death sentence. But that had to be confirmed by the commander-in-chief of that theatre of war, which in the early part of the Western Front would have been Sir John French, and then from late 1915 onwards, Sir Douglas Haig, who became the CNC in the latter part of the war. And he was the one who confirmed the vast majority of executions in the Great War. That wasn't because Haig was any more severe than French, it was the logical conclusion that the army grew, the number of men on active service grew, the length of the war. During his command, there were simply more men that were tried by Field General Court Martial and found guilty of these serious military crimes. So what was the process leading to an execution? Well, a man would commit an offence, he deserts, carry out an act of cowardice in the face of the enemy, run away, discard his weapons, strike a superior officer, whichever one of those military crimes it was. He would then be eventually found, in the case of desertion, men could be on the run for quite some time before they were arrested. Or if it was a crime on a battlefield where he'd run away or striked one of these superior officers, then obviously he would probably be arrested on the spot and then detained. Once arrested, he would be brought back to his unit and be detained by what was called the regimental police within his battalion, within his unit. Every unit had these. They were not from the military police, which was the military foot police was the largest detachment of those at the time of the Great War. These were men who were part of that battalion, but part of their extra duties was to act as regimental police within it. So he'd be detained with them, and if they were out of the line, obviously he'd be held in a barn or somewhere. They wouldn't necessarily use a prison to place him under arrest, and then that would lead quite quickly afterwards to the convening of a field general court-martial, an FGCM. For this, officers were appointed to run the field general court-martial. These were normally drawn from units within the brigade or wider division, sometimes a little bit further afield. There had to be a minimum of three of these officers, 
and they had to be the minimum of the rank of captain. Officers were then appointed to both prosecute and then defend the soldier concerned. The prosecuting officer would gather evidence for the prosecution, so would go to officers within the battalion to seek their opinion of the soldier. The commanding officer would be asked to give a report on him, what kind of soldier was he. They would also then interview and often bring in as witnesses the men who had perhaps detained or even arrested the soldier concerned to speak out on what his conduct was like when he was arrested or those who had witnessed the particular crime for which he was being accused of. The defending officer then built up his own evidence to defend the soldier, to try and put a case that he should not be given the ultimate sanction for this, that he should be given a chance to serve again. That was more difficult in the cases where a soldier had a suspended sentence from a previous Field General Court Martial. And what we find when we go through the records of those who were shot is that quite a number of them were up in front of a Field General Court Martial for a serious crime that could result in the death penalty on a second occasion. And normally, if it was a second occasion, their chances of having that sentence reduced to penal servitude were pretty slim. The accused soldier was able to speak in court and give his own evidence, his own version as to what had happened. When we look at the cases, we see that many didn't. They remained silent. And I think it was because both the prosecuting and defending officers were not legal experts. They didn't draw on men who had any kind of legal experience in the civilian world before the war. They just chose officers, often from particular units, and in the defending officer's case, he was often from the soldier's own unit and may have known that soldier. So this was not a clear and precise legal framework in many respects, although there were rules and regulations that had to be obeyed. The men implementing them were not experts in this field. They were fighting soldiers, not lawyers. So in the cases of accused soldiers where they said absolutely nothing, they probably didn't really understand or realise how serious that was for the outcome of the trial that they were a part of, that in some cases remaining silent pretty much guaranteed the outcome of the court finding them guilty and giving them a death sentence. The key factor in both the prosecution and defence was to ascertain the intent of the soldier. This was a really important factor. Did he intend to desert? Did he intend to cast away his arms in the face of the enemy? That was what the prosecution had to demonstrate and the defence had to try and disprove. And often in cases where there were very few witnesses, that was quite difficult, particularly if there were no witnesses that were in any shape or form sympathetic to what had happened to the soldier. So what kind of justice was this, really? I would guess rough justice by modern standards, quite clearly. In terms of the justice of the day, perhaps not dissimilar to what ordinary working-class people could expect to experience in civilian courts before the war. The big difference, though, of course, that those courts were run and administrated by people who were legal experts, whereas in the army, at most field general court-martials, this just wasn't the case. And some soldiers, when you read these case files, were quite clearly in the wrong place at the wrong time. They were quite literally shot for the sake of example because of a wider pattern of discipline or indiscipline being a problem in the unit or the area where they were serving. But I'm not in this podcast going to tell you whether these courts were right or wrong, just or unjust. That's something that you need to make up your own mind about, and I think that's really important. And with the literature that's out there, it's quite a good and easy process to really get to grips with this and understand it and make your own decisions. Babington's early book, The Two Julians, and also later there was Blindfolded and Alone. And I'll put details of all of these onto the podcast website so you can seek them out if you want to discover more. But to continue with our look at the process of how these court-martials took place... When a trial had occurred, once the evidence had been given, the presiding officers would then make their judgment and they would then sentence the man based on what they had decided was the rights and wrongs of the case. The recommendation of the court 
would be made. If the sentence was death, then that would go up the chain of command to be ratified by senior officers and the buck stopping with the commander-in-chief in the early phase of the war, as we mentioned previously, that would have been Sir John French and then later Haig. And Haig's son, who was an honorary president of the Western Front Association in the early years of his existence, spoke quite a few times about how his father had deliberated about the cases that came before him. He didn't just sign on the dotted line. He sat down and read the evidence and had to make that very difficult decision as to whether the sentence would be confirmed and the soldier executed or not. In most cases, as we know, it was or not. Nine out of ten of them were not shot. And it's clear that no commander ever wants to have to shoot his own men. But as we said previously, for someone like Haig, his view would be that an army does march and fight on discipline. And discipline was very important. And if you lapsed in this discipline, if you didn't have examples of what would happen to you, if you broke down and broke that covenant that soldiers had to maintain that discipline, to maintain their standards and values as soldiers, then in the eyes of someone like Haig and French before him, you'd have just had an army that was no longer an army, but a rabble. Once that sentence was then confirmed by the commander-in-chief, the soldier was then told and a date was selected for the execution to take place. And again, the soldier was told that. He would be detained close by to where the execution was due to be carried out. He would be given, as per the traditions of the condemned man, a final meal, have access to padres. And some of the earliest accounts of these executions come from padres who were detailed to go and see men who were being executed Canon Scotts, who we've mentioned quite a few times in this podcast, The Great War as I Saw It, his memoir mentions this in that book, for example. The execution would then take place close to dawn on the day that it had been selected. The exact time would vary, of course, depending on when dawn was on that day. There would be a firing party of six to twelve men, commanded by an officer. The men would be drawn sometimes from the soldiers' own unit as part of this wider example. They were trying to express upon the men that you must not do these crimes, you must not carry out this type of activity, because next time this could be you. But as the war went on, they found that soldiers were less and less able to actually accurately hit the target in front of them. So a lot of men from the military provost staff corps who run the military prisons behind the lines who were largely regular soldiers who'd been trained on 15 rounds a minute, they were brought in to become firing parties for executions like this. In a party of 12 men, it is believed that at least two blanks were dished out to the soldiers. The idea behind that was that if you didn't really like the idea, and what soldier must have really liked this, but if you didn't like the idea of having to shoot one of your own men then it could be you firing the blank. But of course, as a trained soldier, the second you pulled the trigger, you would instantly know by the recoil of the rifle as to whether you were firing a blank or a live round, because with live rounds, the recoil would have been more severe. The officer in charge of the firing party was there to make sure that every man had been dished out around for his rifle to be able to fire it. He was there to make sure that the condemned soldier was fastened to a post in a field or up against a barn. They'd place sandbags there to obviously stop bullets from ricocheting off the wall. At some executions, the man was placed in a chair and tied to the chair, and then a target would be pinned to his chest, and that would be what the firing party would be aiming for. The officer would then give the order, and the firing party would open up with their rifles. Now, one thing that the records record is whether death was instantaneous or not. And in quite a lot of cases, it wasn't. Now, what's the reason behind that? Was it that the men didn't like the task that they'd been given as a firing party and deliberately missed, deliberately fired to one side? Or was it, as we were mentioning before, with the implementation of men from the military provost staff corps being used to carry out these firing parties, was it simply because some of these soldiers literally could not hit that target? I guess we'll never really know the answer to that one. So that was another task then of the officer, was to make sure 
that the soldier was dead because it wasn't a case if the firing party opened up and you weren't killed, you were patted on the back and you were let go. The officer had a sidearm, he had a revolver, he would then step forward and if the soldier was not dead, he would issue the coup de grace at point-blank range from his pistol. The padre with some stretcher bearers would then take over, they would remove the body on a stretcher and take him off for burial. Again, one of the myths of men who were executed for many years was that they were not properly buried, but they were. The vast majority of men who were shot by firing squad are buried in military cemeteries across the battlefields of the Great War. In some theatres of war, they don't have a known grave and they're on memorials to the missing, and there are some on the Western Front who are on the Menin Gate or Thiepval simply because they were buried in locations that saw subsequent fighting and like other soldiers who had been killed on the battlefield, their graves were lost under those conditions. In some executions, the whole unit that the soldier belonged to was paraded alongside to witness this. If that didn't take place, and even if it did, the details of these executions were then read out. They were published, essentially, in what were called Part 2 orders that were read out on parades at units right across the whole British Expeditionary Force on the Western Front, for example. And there's an interesting sort of follow-on with that, is that these Part 2 orders would have then been part of the unit battalion war diary, for example. Now, when you go to the National Archives and you look at the war diaries, the digitised ones that are available now, for example, you'll see that there are very, very few Part 2 orders that survive. And that's because in the 1960s, when the Ministry of Defence transferred the diaries over to the National Archives, they realised that the Part 2 orders contained the names of executed soldiers and an order, as I understand it, was given to remove them all and burn them so that this information didn't end up in the public domain. So this vast treasure trove of information about units that was contained in these Part 2 orders was lost because they contained the details of those who'd been shot at dawn. After the soldier had been executed and had been buried, the next of kin were informed. Again, this is another of the myths, is that the families were never told. They were told, the War Office wrote to them, and there are some surviving examples of the standard forms that went to the families. Dear Mrs Smith, your son, Private 1234 Smith of the Blankshire Regiment, was tried by Field General Court Martial for the crime of, whatever the crime, was found guilty, sentenced to death, and that sentence was duly carried out on, at, and the details were placed. So that information was passed to the families, whether those family members ever told anybody else, who knows? And who are we to judge more than a 100 years later? You imagine living in a terraced house in those terraced streets of northern Britain and everyone in your street had sons who'd gone to war in the local POWs battalion and your son had been executed. How would you then deal with this? What would you do? Would you try and disguise the fact if it was a local unit then the men still serving would be aware of this and it would be passed down to their own family members eventually. So you couldn't really hide from it. And again, when the two Julians were looking at these, they found that quite a large number of families moved away not long after the execution had taken place. So perhaps that demonstrates that the stigma of this was real and apparent at the time and people had to literally flee to get away from it. Soldiers who were executed forfeited all rights to their service medals. So with a couple of exceptions, no medals were ever issued to men who were shot at dawn. No memorial plaque or memorial scroll was sent. And again, in that post-war world, when all of the families had lost sons at the front, this would be part of everyday life, the arrival of the medals, the display of the plaque and the scroll. What would you do knowing that your son was not there and others knowing that he was not there, how would you deal with that? So just like the soldiers killed on the battlefields, the echoes of loss went way beyond the actual front itself and continues for many years into civilian life beyond the Great War. These families had to live in the legacy of this, just like the families who'd lost sons in battle. It was no different, really, for them, perhaps in some respects harder in a land fit for heroes their son their brother their husband didn't really fit into that category 
how do you deal with grief on that sort of scale? We can only but imagine. Back in the 1980s when I was interviewing Great War veterans, I often used to ask them about this. Were they witness to any executions? One or two of them I knew by the units they were in that an execution had taken place in that battalion. And generally what was interesting in talking to them, even after all those decades, I would say that they had very little sympathy for these men. They felt that these men had failed them as their comrades, they'd let them down. And one soldier said to me, one veteran said to me, he said, this man was going to have a quick death. We were marching up the line to take part in the Battle of Passchendaele. I could have been shot in the stomach and taken hours to die screaming for my mother. His death was quick and instantaneous, and we just forgot about it and marched on and fought the rest of the war. So in these circumstances where the binding of men in a military unit is really important and they depend on each other, they see each other as brothers. When someone lets them down like this, I guess it's hard for them to forgive. And that's all part, really, of our understanding of this subject. And again, looking at the wider picture, by 1918 it was a conscript army. They were conscripting everybody from 18 to 55. And you get lots of very good soldiers, lots of very good men, but equally, just like a cross-section of normal civilian life, you get bad men as well, men who have no desire to be soldiers and will do anything to break the rules for their own agenda. And you see that as the war progresses as well. So it's not like most aspects of history. The story of the men shot at dawn is far from black and white, far from clear. And like all aspects of history, that's exactly what makes it fascinating. With the publication of all those books on this subject, it led to a wider public knowledge and understanding of executions in the Great War. And families suddenly found that grandmother had never told them, but they had ancestors who had been shot. And a campaign grew for these men to be pardoned. Nearly a century later, it was seen as unjust the way that they were treated and so that pardon campaign grew with momentum leading to the 1990s and the pardoning of all of these men, except those who had been convicted of crimes involving murder. And what that meant was, and the British Legion, the Royal British Legion recognised this as well, it allowed those families of the men who had been shot to march in remembrance ceremonies in exactly the same way as any other family could do. And I think that was a very important outcome of all this historical study. The past did not remain in the past, it became part of the present, and people reacted to it. In some respects people might say we had no right to judge events from all those decades before, and in the case of Thomas Highgate that we mentioned, there was a lot of controversy when an attempt was made to add his name to the local war memorial. Some people said that they would not stand and salute the memorial if his name was added to it, for example. So feelings on this run very deep on both sides, but it is an important aspect of our understanding of the Great War. So having looked at some background to the story of how and under what circumstances soldiers were executed, let's look at where we can find it today on the battlefields of the Western Front. A good place to start our look at what you can find of these men who were shot at dawn on the battlefields of the Western Front is at Balilmore Communal Cemetery, behind the lines on the front between Arras and the Somme. It's a French civilian cemetery, and you open the gate and walk in and the British graves are across on your right. They're not white Portland stone, they're the reddy colour of the coarse hill stone that is used in only a small number of cemeteries from the First World War. And among the 30-odd graves that we find here, we discover the headstones of Albert Ingham and Alfred Longshaw. Both these men served with the 18th Battalion, the Manchester Regiment, the Manchester Pows, 
At the time, they were attached to their brigade machine gun company in the Machine Gun Corps. They were a double execution, shot on the 1st of December 1916. Ingham and Longshore were old friends. They'd joined up together. And when we look at the 1911 census for them, we see that they were living in Pendleton, near Manchester. On Albert Ingham's entry for the census, he's one of three brothers, one younger than him, one older, and his father is a power loom overlooker working in the cotton trade. Ingham was then working as a railway clerk. And when we look at the entry for Longshore, we see that he was also working on the railways in a railway office. His father was a general labourer in the bleach and dye works close by. So they'd grown up together, they'd worked together, joined up together at the beginning of the war, gone across to France together and taken part in the Battle of the Somme. Their unit had been in the attack on Montauban on the 1st of July in the fighting for Troneswood and Guillemont, so they'd been in action quite a few times. And as the Battle of the Somme came to an end, they deserted and made their way behind the lines. They got up to the French coast, and when you think about how these men did desert and get that far behind the lines, it was not an easy task, because the area behind the front was full of thousands of soldiers, and to move around from A to B, you had to have a written order of an officer allowing you to do that, so you could be stopped at any point and asked, who are you, what are you doing, where's your order to do whatever it is you say you're doing? So it was not an easy task to try and slip through all this, but slip through it they did. They made their way up to the coast at Dieppe and they got onto an American ship. They apparently threw their uniforms into the dock, so they discarded their uniform and put on civilian clothes. And during a routine inspection of these ships by men from the military foot police, they came on and questioned both Ingham and Longshore asked them who they were, they gave false names and claimed to be American citizens returning to the United States. I would guess two lads from the back streets of Manchester probably couldn't put on a very convincing American accent, so the military police detachment was suspicious and arrested them, and they eventually gave up the details of who they were. They both claimed to be deserting to re-enlist in the Royal Navy. Whether there was any truth in that, or not is hard to say but again when you look at this case and you see the circumstances how they got away from the front through all that infrastructure of the British Expeditionary Force behind the lines on the Western Front got to the coast got on an American ship to get away what was the intent how easy was all that and if these men were genuinely affected by their war service in the way that many have claimed on their behalf was all of that possible whatever They were convicted at their trial and sentenced to death. And the sentence was carried out near Balliolmont on the 1st of December 1916. Why I relate their story is not the circumstances of their desertion and execution as such. It's how Albert Ingham's father then chose to commemorate his son on the headstone that was eventually erected on his grave in this communal cemetery with a personal inscription and it's that personal inscription that has resonated down through the decades in this whole subject of military executions in the first world war so what does it say on the headstone are the words shot at dawn one of the first to enlist a worthy son of his father so that phrase shot at dawn comes from albert ingham's headstone from the inscription placed upon it by his father and it's a powerful statement and I think any pilgrimage to the battlefields of the Western Front should at some point include a visit to this cemetery where you can stand and you can think in the quietness of that tiny corner of northern France on the whole aspect of these men being executed in the Great War. Aside from graves there are also locations where you can actually see surviving trenches where incidents took place that led to a soldier being executed. And an example of this on the Somme is at the Newfoundland Park at Beaumont Hamel. Thousands of people visit that each year, perhaps not realising that it's connected to the story of a soldier who was executed by firing squad, Private Reginald Tite, in this case, of the 13th Battalion, the Royal Sussex Regiment. When the two Julians wrote their book on military executions, 
It was believed that Tyke came from East Grinstead in Sussex. Actually, he came from Peckham. His surviving service records are now available on Ancestry and the other sites where you can find this information. And on there we see he was a 26-year-old tram driver working for the London County Council. Tyke had joined the army in 1915 and had been posted to one of the South Downs battalions of the Royal Sussex Regiment. He'd served overseas with them. And as you come into the Newfoundland Park today and you cross over the reserve line up to the support line and the front line area beneath the Caribou and you go off to the left towards Hawthorne Ridge Number 2 Cemetery, you run along a section of front line trench on what is essentially the northern part of the park and it's in those trenches there in the autumn of 1916 that Tite, having been given an order to be in a particular place, disregarded that order and removed himself from the place of danger. A few weeks later he did essentially the same thing again and in his service file we have the charge that was laid out before him. Misbehaving before the enemy in such a manner as to show cowardice. The accused, who was a Lewis gunner, received an order from an officer to remain in a dugout in the front line during an action. He absented himself and withdrew to the reserve line, his action being clearly proved to have been due to cowardice. Reginald Tyke claimed to the court, I wish to state that I am very queer when I am in the line. I can't sleep and I can scarcely eat anything. When there is a bombardment on, I seem to take leave of my senses. I run from one bay to another and I have to clear out of the line altogether. So this incident partly took place here in the trenches of what is now the Newfoundland Park. So next time you come to this corner of the Somme, that's something to muse over when you come here. For tights, he was tried and convicted on the Somme, but his battalion of the Royal Sussex Regiment was moving north to Flanders, and by the time there was an opportunity to carry out the sentence that the court had dished out, they were close to the town of Popperinger, and he was executed here on the 25th of November 1916, buried today in Popperinger New Military Cemetery, a cemetery that contains the graves of 17 men who were executed by firing squad, the largest number buried in a single cemetery from the Great War. And from there we'll go into Popperinger itself, to the main square. The town came under shell fire during the Great War and we will return to Popperinger probably for a few episodes looking at this town and its importance in the Great War in Flanders. But here in this square men went to and fro all the time, moving from the camps, going about their duties. And ahead of them, on the edge of the square, was the tower of the town hall. And behind that was a courtyard. And if we walk round the town hall, all the original buildings, like I say, it came under shell fire, but Popperinger was not destroyed in the same way that Eep was. We come to an archway entrance. As we go in, there's the entrance to some cells, now called the death cells, on our right. And the death cells were a place where men who were arrested within Popperinger for military crimes were detained. And this included everything from drunk and disorderly right through to men who were deserters. So it is true that some men who were subsequently shot were detained here. I don't think there's any evidence that they were detained here the night before their execution. There's quite a lot of graffiti on the walls and when I came here with Julian Sykes when he was researching his book in the 80s we came to look at this graffiti but the cells in those days were being used to hold the wooden voting boxes that were used in local elections and it required a lot of shifting to even see a bit of this graffiti because it was said that on that wall was the name of a man who'd been shot and that's proved subsequently not to be the case. But this is a location that many thousands of people come to each year to get a sense of what military justice was all about and coming back out of the cells we go into the courtyard at the back where today we find a memorial to those soldiers who were shot at dawn in Flanders in the Great War. Now for a long while there was an original execution pole on display here and again in the 80s when myself and Julian came to Popperinger we inquired because we'd been told that an original execution pole used to execute a soldier of the Chinese Labour Corps in 1919 was held in the town archives and indeed it was and they allowed us to carry this thing out of their reserve collection into this courtyard, prop it up against the wall and photograph it for Julian's book.
For a long while, many years later, it was placed in a plastic tube and was on display here as some grim reminder of the fate of soldiers within this courtyard during the war. It's not really known how many men were shot here, but this was then the memorial. But sadly, the pole itself began to deteriorate and has now been taken back inside and preserved. And it is a terrible and grim souvenir of this subject, but it's important that something like that survives, I think. So the new memorial replaces it. But the courtyard as we see it today was very different. In the 80s, it was pretty much unchanged since the Great War. It was a four-walled courtyard, completely enclosed, with a brick wall at the back. And there were some signs on the bricks of indents, whether that was just general damage or the ping of bullets that missed the target in the executions that took place here. We'll probably never know. But generally, the executions appear to have been taken at the back of the courtyard, where now you'll see the glass frontage of a modern office. And sandbags were placed against the wall, the pole in front, and the execution took place there. So that meant that the execution done here in the heart of this town was also in the heart of the movement of troops in and around that town. So all part of that idea of this being for the sake of example... It was done there so that soldiers heard it and went back to their mates and told them, sat in estaminets behind the lines and recounted this story. And that's how the information about what would happen to you if you stepped out of line was then disseminated amongst the troops as a whole. When we stand here and reflect on the execution of 306 British and Commonwealth soldiers for military crimes during the Great War, I guess it's all part of our understanding of the many faces of that war that the war was not all about heroes not every man was a hero some men failed some men broke down many once conscription came in just did not want to be there and not every man that served between 1914-18 was necessarily a good man and some deliberately left their post deserted their comrades and tried to get away. It's a complex subject, but an important one. Important in our understanding of the men who marched to war, and those graves of the men shot at dawn that remained so silent for so long are silent no more. Thousands visit them on a normal year, and why not? Because their story is just as important as any other. Their story is all part of those darker chapters of the history we find along the old front line. You've been listening to an episode of The Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reed. You can follow me on Twitter at Somcor. You can follow the podcast at Old Frontline Pod. Check out the website at oldfrontline.co.uk where you'll find lots of podcast extras and photographs and links to books that are mentioned in the podcast. And if you feel like supporting us, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash oldfrontline, or support us on Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash oldfrontline. Links to all of these are on our website. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon.